Hey, it's The OK Show, brought to you by The Current. I'm your host, Andrea Swenson, and this is the show where we talk about the struggles that we face in life and the music that can make it okay. My guest on today's show is Adam Levy, the lead singer of The Honey Dogs, who has a stunning and deeply personal album coming out next month. It's called Knob and Way. We're going to hear from Adam in just a little bit. But first, I wanted to give you some background information on why I chose him to be the guest on today's show. Not always. Once I was brimming with venom, you leave unsentimental eyes, resolute cold. So there might be a lot of reasons why Adam Levy's name sounds familiar to you. As I mentioned, he's the lead singer of the band The Honey Dogs, the Minneapolis-based group that exploded in the 90s with a run of commercial radio hits. He's also been playing around town in recent years in Liminal Phase, his orchestral pop band and The Professors, and his band with his two daughters, Ava and Esther, The Bunny Clogs. Adam is also known as an educator and mentor around town to younger musicians. He's worked at places like McNally Smith College of Music. And in more recent years, he's taken on a completely new role as someone who has been brutally honest and open about his own experiences with mental illness and losing his son Daniel to suicide. I'm not going to beat around the bush here. Today's episode is going to feature a very serious conversation. Adam Levy's life has been very serious over these past four years. Adam lost his son Daniel in January of 2012. Daniel was 21 years old. At that point, he had already established himself as a very unique and brilliant young artist. He created these amazing visual works of art with this really vivid, almost grotesque imagery that just kind of jumped out and grabbed you. You may have seen some of Daniel's work. Actually, the cover of the last liminal phase record was created by Daniel. And his work is also prominently featured on Adam's new solo record, Nobinway. Nobinway is a beautiful album. It is Adam Levy's first solo record. So we are basically left alone with him as he sorts through this grief, this depression, this fog that can descend on a person when they've gone through this kind of devastating loss. But something that I'm really interested about in this record is that all throughout the album, there's this message of hope. There's actually a quote printed in the inside of the album sleeve. It says, hope is the wounded beast that should never be put out of its misery. It's kind of a bleak sentiment, but it also ultimately puts a light at the end of this tunnel as you're listening to this record. You're hearing Adam sort through these complex, incredibly heartbreaking feelings and experiences. But at the end, you ultimately feel that he has found some sense of peace amid it all. So I want to talk to Adam about that. I want to talk about sorting through all of these really complicated emotions. How do you translate something like that into a song? How do you make that song sound so beautiful, like a pop song? And what has this experience been like for him to be so open with other members of the community, with other musicians? He's been leading panels. He's been speaking publicly about losing Daniel. What has that done for him and his family during this grieving process? I am here now with Adam Levy. He's been kind enough to invite me over to his home. I have his kitty Dee Dee in my lap. 
and we're drinking some coffee. She it's likes a, you. It's a really, really nice way to, to start a week here. Um, thank you, Adam, for having me over. Thanks for talking with me, Andrea. Yeah, so you have this album coming out, mm-hmm. and I want to definitely get into um, you know the story behind the record, how this came together. Um, obviously, um, we want to talk a lot about your son, Daniel, because he was uh, featured uh, in the artwork and in a lot mm-hmm. of the songs. So um, I guess to begin with, um, I'm curious to know, you know, at what point um, in this process of losing Daniel, did you feel like you could express this musically, what you were feeling? Definitely not at the beginning. Um, I think that up to about a year and a half after Daniel had died, um, I, I didn't really write any music at all. And I didn't try to force it. I didn't sit down and say, hey, I, I, I'm feeling so horribly right now I want to try to put words in it and make it into a song I just left that alone because I needed to to sit with it and it just kind of happened naturally you know I was um, feeling the need to to make music and write and I had actually written a lot about what I was feeling but in a non-musical way Um, I had a blog site and was doing some reflecting on there and had thought about doing some sort of memoir about my experience with grief and my family's experience. And and so from that, there were little scraps and bits of pieces of things that I said that that sounded to me like they could be, you know, put to music. Yeah. And, and so at about that point, you know, a year, year and a half, um, the songs just started coming to me and they came to me from, you know, different angles. Some of them were about my own pain and my own grief and the different stages that you go through with that and other songs were about Daniel and and sort of the the heavy question that hangs over everything which is why did this happen and why did we get to this point which is in in a lot of ways sort of my life my life's work now yeah you know it's just processing how we got to this point why it happened and and then just getting through it and finding joy. Said the bullseye to the rifle. You can't catch me. Said the tire to the rope. I'll be your mother. it comes Take it as it comes Take it as it comes I can't get out of this space Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about Daniel's struggle and when did you know in his life that there was something wrong? Daniel was about 16 and was uh, into boxing. He's, <laughs> he was kind of an active kid. He was a skateboarder, and then he got interested in boxing. And uh, he was boxing and started to notice some what he considered 
compulsive behaviors around it about weight management and about patterns of behavior that he had to repeat mm. um, obsessive compulsive I guess you might call it so he he flagged that stuff for us and we talked about it and he saw a therapist and he was a really I mean he was a very happy well-adjusted magnetic fun to be around kid there was no signs early on um, he was he was a smart kid but we never worried that he was gonna be depressive at all but at about 16 you know we saw this behavior happening and then um, graduating from high school it intensified and kind of late in his high school stage he started to exhibit more depressive depression symptoms um, his art was a bit of a red flag early on he was really interested in uh, interested is the wrong word he was almost possessed by pain and torture and demonic characters and in a lot of ways you know when you see that you just think teenagers are are coming to grips with their own identity and and those sorts of things become kind of metaphors for most kids boys in particular growing up and he was fascinated with heavy metal music and hip-hop and some of the the sort of darker social aspects of that stuff crept into into the work so there was part of me that said you know is this is this unusual is this something we should be concerned about so we had him in therapy and we were concerned as any parent would be um, and then he, he went off to college here at uh, Minneapolis Institute of Arts mm. and or MCAD he was at MCAD and and that's when things really start when we started to see a greater degree of depression and 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 I would say kind of episodic moments where he was almost in, in temporary psychosis you know mm. he would he would just be unreachable and had hallucinations and a couple times it was brought on just by doing you know by smoking pot and that sort of intensified it. Um, and he just, he, he struggled with it for a few years and just decided he wanted to go home, didn't want to be here. It was hard for me because it was the first time in his life where we were together almost every day. Yeah. You know, he was living in Minneapolis. We were a couple blocks apart and he could skateboard over for dinner. And so I was really excited to have him nearby, but um, he just, he didn't want to be here. He wanted to be back home with with old friends and the comfort of mom's house and everything so New York where he yeah he was, was in living? upstate New York okay in Saratoga Springs so he was here for about a year and a half and then went home and and then really um, things started to sort of spiral downwards from there he did a lot of therapy mm. he was very active at first in in managing it and embraced different techniques and was reading a lot about depression and and a lot about trying to figure out how he could get through it and took his meds when he was supposed to and um, was able to reflect about everything he was doing very sensibly and that that was that was great but he went you know gradually into a place where his sense of hope diminished and 
nothing seemed to work. He didn't really believe in much of anything. Mm. It just got really bleak. Were you in close contact with him still when he was in New York? I was. We talked a lot. I think that's one of the one of the few things I can kind of take with me in his absence. Uh, a lot of parents get caught off guard with suicides or uh, they just they can't believe that you know it actually happened and for me that last year was so intense and such a gradual wearing down of everybody's ability to to be present and helpful we were just so exhausted um, and the, the good part of that was just that Daniel was willing to talk to me about everything I felt like I understood and and he was open to listening to my advice about things, whether or not he took my advice, you know. Yeah. Um, but he did talk to his mom and me and to his grandmother. And so I felt like I tried to do as much as I could. It wasn't like I was completely blindsided. It was a, it was a, I've, I've likened it to kind of a terminal illness where you're watching somebody fall apart and you do everything you can, but there's a part of you that just knows inevitably something is going to happen. Daniel, I'm worried worn about the things I didn't do. How I let you down couldn't get you through. And how we tried in vain. Daniel, Still unhinged by your exit Not something we accept yet Much has changed since you left us um, As I was listening to your record, you definitely addressed that feeling of wondering if there was more that you could have done. And another thing that I thought was really striking is that you commented through your lyrics about really trying to understand, almost like a detective, um, what was going on through his art afterwards, um, you know, piecing together more of what he was going through. And um, can you talk a little bit about that journey and maybe getting to know him even better um, through looking at all these things that he was creating? Yeah, you know, the only thing we have of Daniel is memories and, and his art, and we've got a lot of it. When he died, that was the first thing his mom and I did was just to go through all of his sketchbooks. And there's things he was really good about. Hey, Dad, I did this thing. Let me show you a picture of it. I'm really excited about this thing that I made. And and I had, uh, when the liminal phase record was being made, I just thought, let's have Daniel do something. And that was his last six months. It was one mm. of the last things that he made. And thank goodness we've got these three pieces that ended up on that, this record, which are complete paintings that he did in there quite remarkable um, but there was a lot of stuff I'd never seen and I mean mountains of I'm, I'm looking at a pile here of books that's about um, a foot tall yeah but there's you know there's more stuff with his mother as well and going through these after he died uh, was a way to connect with him a way to try to make sense of the pain that he had he drew every day and for him, drawing was clearly a therapeutic process. He didn't sign his work. Mm. He didn't date his work. So here is this giant mound of books. Um, Josh Journey Heinz is helping me do a book of oh, his wow. work. So 
we went through these books together. In fact, one afternoon in the, this winter, we spent about four and a half hours drinking coffee and just looking through everything and trying to figure out a chronology of work and when things were done. And he lived with Daniel briefly, so um, he sort of had a sense of when things might have been done. But as I sat with him and went through things and looked at the development of his skills and sort of technical uh, and thematic approaches, it was really clear that there was a timeline of development. And definitely the later you go towards his death, the more amazing and unique the work that he was creating became. Mm. And so definitely I feel this connection to Daniel and making sense of his life. In a, in a, this is like another puzzle piece for me of of how things happen. You have taken on this new role I've, I've seen um, of talking very openly about this experience and talking to other people about mental health. Mm. What is it like to go through this experience publicly and to have to kind of be able to speak on your own emotions in kind of an authoritative way mm-hmm. <laughs> and and assume this role of you know trying to help other people through their situations? Uh, it wasn't difficult at all, and there was a there was a moment. His mother was really not a big fan of social media, and when Daniel um, was hospitalized after the suicide, there was this immediate like news traveled very rapidly. Even though I didn't really tell that many people, it just people seemed to know, and they started posting on my. Facebook page and on Jennifer's Facebook page and she said you're not going to answer this you're not going to respond to this and I said yeah I'm not it just doesn't feel right I'm not going to say anything and I mean it was like hundreds of notes from people and then um, Jennifer said I I don't know I think you should say something and and I did I just wrote a very brief note I just said um, I want to thank everybody for reaching out with um, kind notes my son Daniel died yesterday um, after a long struggle with with mental illness, and that was it. It was a very short note, and there was a complete outpouring and people who wanted to tell me their stories and mm-hmm. all of these notes and I just sort of jumped into the fray and talked about it and it felt it felt good um, and it didn't feel as though we were trivializing Daniel's experience. It felt like we were making connections, these meaningful connections with people in a way that I didn't feel social media. Uh, had been there before but all of a sudden wow you know people are telling me that their sibling committed suicide 25 years ago and they haven't been able to talk about it and now all of a sudden there feels like there's some degree of of comfort with them being able to share this stuff it was it was it was amazing in a lot of ways even though we were in the midst of great pain and yeah and um, guilt you know about having watched a child die and not really being able to do anything about it it's it's a parent's worst fear but from there it just it continued on and 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 I would go periodically with people to talk over coffee about experiences they were having with their family and I feel like I've learned a lot about my own grief in talking to other people about their grief or about their worries about children siblings spouses um, significant others suffering from from depression yeah I feel compelled to t- tell you something from yeah. my life um, I wasn't sure if I wanted to bring this up but mm-hmm. at the beginning of this year I lost a family member to suicide oh no um, my father-in-law oh wow um, 
It was after a, a two-year uh, battle with cancer. Oh, wow. um, and as you were talking just now, I just realized that, you know, I haven't felt like I could talk about that um, because I, part of me is thinking, you know, that's really just not my story. It's his. Um, right. But also that it's just a hard thing to talk about. It's a, um, I don't know if it's because I am a Minnesotan or uh, there's such a stigma around it, but mm-hmm. it's just, um, it's been a very unique grieving process because it's been just me and my husband um, right. dealing with it. So, wow. And family haven't been super public about talking about right. it. Right, yeah. Yeah, so it's, um, I guess I, I just feel like I can um, relate to your album on a, a very deep level and what um, it must have been like for you. Obviously, totally different situations, but there is this just bizarre cloud that uh, descends of um, mm-hmm. why and um, did we do something wrong? And right. you're just never going to really know. Um, mm-hmm. And you'd have to kind of get comfortable with that. And right. it's it's really hard <laughs> to, to get comfortable in that kind of situation. It's so hard. And you're just left with questions forever. And, you know, a lot of, the, I think the therapeutic message with any sort of trauma for many years has been, you know, quit asking why. Just look at the now and the future and get through it. And to me, that's very important. But I also believe that making sense of the things that happened that led Daniel to make that decision are a very important part of us creating a story uh, and and trying to help other people so that it doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, but there's a reason why suicide is so... It's a cardinal sin, you know, or was in Catholicism for years, and was one of the worst things you could do. I think it's it's for this reason that it's so disruptive, mm-hmm. and it isn't just about a single person making a choice to kill themselves. It's about saying to the entire community, "I don't want to be here," and then everybody feeling like, "Well, what did I do wrong, or what didn't we do, and how didn't we help?" And so it's a very it's a very destructive thing that happens um one thing i'll say that i've learned after three years of being in this is i don't feel anger towards daniel i've never felt uh you know like want to punch the wall how could you do this to us Mm. at any point yeah um i might you know say to this guy daniel we miss you so much why did you do this but there's never like a real venomous anger for him doing it because the pain was so visceral for all of us. We were yeah. so in touch with that. He was so open about it. And so I knew, we knew that he was he was living in a state of, of mental torture yeah. and anguish. And I think people are starting to understand that finally. It'll pull you like a magnet It'll soothe your nerves It'll quiet pain In the end It'll run you ragged It'll knock you down It'll take you out To the potter's field In the rain Um, well, I want to talk more specifically about this record 
um, one thing that I was thinking about uh, this week when I was listening to it is I've never listened to a record that sounds so much like if someone made a pop record about depression. Wow. <laughs> and, I mean, obviously you can draw comparisons to people who draw that line between melancholy and also the brightness of pop music like Elliot Smith. Mm-hmm. And, but to me, there's this just kind of relentless feeling of hope coursing hmm. through the record, even when you're talking about such dark material. Um, I'm curious, you know, when you started writing songs, how do you go about setting a tone for something um, that is so personal and so serious? I think that's something I've always done um, in my music. I've reflected on subjects that, you know, maybe aren't the realm of pop music and the record like 10,000 years in 2003. A lot of people said, how do you, there's really catchy music in this. It's There's a lot of beauty, but you're talking about genocide and and some really heavy social issues. How's that work? And to me, I've, I've never felt like I can make music that is absolutely dismally depressing. And melodies and, and chord movement and things like that always give me, you know, my favorite songs, the, the hair on my neck stands up. And even if it's a sad subject matter, there's something that's really, uh, life-affirming in that process of listening to music that moves you. So that's kind of been innate in most of the work that I've created. This subject matter in particular is so near and dear to me. And unlike 10,000 years in which I was sort of an observer of other people's stories, this is about being in my own skin. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the words are very simple in a lot of ways on this record compared to previous records. But again, this idea of how can you tell a story in a way that is memorable and connects with people and doesn't leave them completely destroyed by your feelings, you know? Yeah. I'm finding when I play these songs publicly, I want to play them back to back with a bunny clog song or something because there's a responsibility that I have of, of letting people be my therapist Mm. and listen to me ache about the pain that I'm I'm in and that feels like a sometimes it feels like I'm burdening people with that and so maybe the idea of having music that makes you actually feel good when you listen to it is a way of balming and countering that heaviness of mm. the subject matter thinking more about this album um and also your own journey with depression. Um, yeah. There's a few songs on there where I actually can't tell if you're talking about mm-hmm. grief or depression. Mm. Have you found through this experience similarities there in the way that you cope with those two feelings? And do you feel that they come from a similar place? Yeah, I, that's a very good question. It's interesting, and I, maybe I'm just going to start by saying the six months after Daniel's death, I didn't really have a cry, a good cry after Daniel died. Mm. And part of it was just, I think, my need to soldier through to to make sure my daughters were okay and adjusting to all of the pain. And part of it was a sense of responsibility to my friends and bandmates and all that. Like, I just have to buck up and deal with this. And, you know, I cried on the inside, but I didn't really have any sort of like, oh my gosh, I'm just going to 
melt. And the summer after, I really did kind of collapse and couldn't work and had a few days where I just hit a wall. And so in a lot of ways, depression is a part of the grief process for me and it becomes indistinguishable. And that's something I've just had to kind of sit with, you know, not knowing is this, am I feeling Daniel right now? Am I feeling the pain around Daniel or is it something else? The, the song, um, This Friend on the record to me is just a song about depression. Yeah. And and an idea about depression which I've started to have which is depression is this entity in your life sort of like a friend that you're not all that into or that can be really annoying <laughs> or is really needy and that you have to tend to him or her periodically and you can't banish them you can't just uh, get them out of your life you have to figure out a way to coexist mm -hmm. And I tried to capture that in that song. I call you out, I beg your pardon, sue for peace, I call your death. This friend is not a friend, he steals your breath, ruins many's alive. On a full sake of gas, can you make a man better find One uh, theme that is definitely in the record that I um, appreciate, and again, I don't want to misquote you, but it's printed in the inside of the sleeve, is mm -hmm. this idea of hope. Mm -hmm. And hope being this um, kind of long-suffering beast that you have to keep alive. Where do you find new sources of hope? You know, I think there's there, there are different things, you know, in relationships you need to find ways to be hopeful that you're not you know locked into the same pattern with somebody forever and that you're going to be able to grow with that person um you need to find hope with your children that you have some sense that they're going to become independent and 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 live their lives um creatively i i need to figure out ways not to do the same thing over and over again either professionally or or creatively um, so the idea that I haven't written my best song yet is, mm -hmm. is a mantra that keeps me going. Um, and two years ago, if somebody would have said, you're going to write this, this record about your son's death that is, is going to feel really like, a, like a, another plateau that you've reached creatively, I don't know if I would have believed them, but it's so nice to be here and to say, wow, this body of work feels cohesive and it feels representative of me and it feels like it's something different and I guess in some ways maybe better than anything I've done before those sorts of things allow you to to feel hopeful I think when Daniel died there was a sense of life really being over as I knew it mm. and so not just mourning the actual loss of your child but mourning the loss of a life that you would expect it to live in a certain way, that I was going to be a grandparent, that Daniel was going to have children, and that he was going to become this amazing artist who was just beginning at that point, that he was going to become a person who would survive the struggle 
and that it all, would always be there and yet he would get through it like all that stuff was gone in in an instant pretty much also knowing that happiness is is something that at that point i felt like i was never going to experience joy or happiness in the same way <clears throat> and i can remember like every day thinking am i going to be happy again am i ever going to be able to smile for months and months and that was that there was a, a sense of doom that yeah. that existed there um, and I'll admit it, I, I felt suicidal at times after he died. I felt like a real sense of purpose in my life had disappeared. I can relate to the feeling of, am I ever going to laugh again, find humor in things again? I think for my experience, I got to a point where I realized I was going to be a different person after going through a traumatic experience, but also a person that could understand more about what other people who have gone through trauma experience and mm -hmm. I think for me that was kind of the silver lining of knowing um, just a deeper understanding of it, the human experience and an empathy for people that are in that situation and um, it sucks <laughs> so bad but if I can come out of it a you know stronger more compassionate person I think that's a important thing and I think that Watching you go through this experience, I think people saw that in you immediately, that they felt that they could come to you and that you would understand them. Yeah, I, I also think watching my children, knowing that having gone through this, they will have challenges, they will have really terrible things that they go through. But the upside is they're going to be more understanding of everybody that they come across that has dealt with this. They're going to be probably more... Uh, generous with themselves and kind to themselves when they're feeling bad and so there's an equipment that I think they've received through all of this that's going to make their lives richer in some way even though you know we listened to the record the other day and Esther and Ava have cried throughout this three-year period quite often we were listening to the record and Esther just completely broke down and then Ava broke down and then I broke down and mm. It's just, it's always there, you know, it's its going to be with them. But um, I think knowing that they can talk about it is really important. And it, it gives me some peace of mind that they don't have to just suffer through this alone. powerful conversation. Thank you so much to Adam Levy for appearing on today's OK Show. That's the end of the episode. My name is Andrea Swenson. You can find all of the OK Show episodes over at thecurrent.org. We archive them on the local Current blog, which you can read at blog.thecurrent.org. Follow me on Twitter if you want to. It's Slingshot Annie. And let me know if you have any ideas for guests that you would like to hear on this show. I am already booking into the second season. Come back next week for a conversation with Irv Williams, the 96-year-old jazz saxophone player, who's going to tell us how he has stayed so active, so healthy, and so motivated to play jazz throughout his very long, prosperous life. Until next time, it's going to be okay. This time.